we remain standing for the reading of the gospel, from Mark's gospel, the sixth chapter. It's kind of an interrupted reading, 30 to 34, and then 53 to 56, but also the stuff that comes in between that I won't be reading. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat, and they went away in the boat to a lonely place by themselves. Now many saw them going and knew them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And as he landed, he saw a great throng, and he had compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about the whole neighborhood and began to bring sick people on their pallets to any place where they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and besought him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Last summer, I had this delightful pleasure of a family vacation with the whole family. Our daughters, their husbands, our grandchildren, all of us went to Colorado. My daughter Beth is good at finding places on the internet where we could stay in a house, all of us together. And we stayed at Manitou Springs, the resort town at the foot of Pikes Peak. At the foot, that's not exactly accurate, it's 6,600 feet up. Before we went, my son-in-law Todd emailed me a picture and with the caption, do you want to do this hike? I just glanced at it. It said it was one mile and one-tenth long. And I thought, that's not like Todd. That doesn't sound very challenging. But I said, sure, we'll do this hike. I really should have looked at the fine print. What started at 6,600 feet, it did go for one and one-tenth miles, but during that one mile or so, it climbed 2,200 feet. You've seen those signs on the road that warn you about a steep grade ahead, 4% or 6%. The grade was 37%, and then it went to 68%. told myself I could do this. I lied. (laughs) Every fourth step, I stopped to catch my breath. My grandchildren didn't have the decency to wait on me. (laughs) Nor the decency to be out of breath when I finally got up there where they were resting. What I thought would be easy turned out to be very hard. We picked up the scripture today at a particular point. 
But back up just a bit. John the Baptist had disciples, and they listened to him, and they experienced water washing over them in baptism in the wilderness. And they delighted in their truth-telling leader. It was just all so empowering. And then he was arrested and put in prison. And then his head was cut off. And just prior to this verse, they have taken his body and buried him. And there's an emptiness there, a longing, a dispiriting. It's so much more difficult than they imagined. And the apostles, they've been sent on a mission, and they've been told to take nothing with them. Basically, they go out... And they're to use themselves, to give of themselves in this work of teaching and preaching and healing and throwing out demons. It's exhausting work. And the first readers of Mark's gospel are people who follow Jesus in that rich glow of the resurrection. When everything seemed possible, when loving your enemies was just a tangible dream. But loving everybody challenged the political and the economic order and they found themselves persecuted and their lives endangered and what seemed like a no-brainer had become frightening and hard and for all of these that soulful place of joy and purpose is threatened by emptiness and grief and fear And to them, Jesus says these words, come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while. It's a touching word. Just recently read a book, not something I'm going to recommend to you, but it's one of those quick reads. You just read it for the fun of it. You don't expect any great deep insight. But the main character said this line, and I wrote it down. He said, I was alone. Because no one seemed to know what was in my heart, I was alone. Because no one seemed to know what was in my heart. You ever feel like that? Here, Jesus knows. Here, there's this offer of comfort to those who feel like nobody really knows what's in here. He calls them to rest, to this quiet place to think, to this place without constant demand, this place where they can receive instead of always giving out, this place to learn and be nurtured, this place where they can just breathe in the beauty, this place that restores energy and perspective and courage, a place that lets mind and body and soul reconnect a place where one might feel the breath of God. But the crowd follows them. And when you read this chapter, you get this sense of this overwhelming, compelling needs of the crowd. And Jesus sees them as sheep without a shepherd. What a tender way to see so many people with so much need. And there's nothing here that says the disciples saw them that way. Their leader, John the Baptist, has been beheaded. John, who was the voice of God for so many, and that voice has been silenced. 
the feeling is that the overwhelming demand and it's so draining. When I was doing my chaplaincy training at Fort Leonardwood, Missouri, there was a member of our group, the Catholic chaplain for the base. He was in charge of spiritual care for 6,000 Catholic troops and their families. Everything he ever brought to our group was about stress, and he never smiled. As I've gotten older, the warranty on some of my joints has worn out, and I found myself in an orthopedic surgeon's office more times than I want to count. And it's a large waiting room, and all kinds of people are there with cast and neck braces and walkers and canes and foot boots and slings, and you're going to be there a while. I've learned to take along a couple of books and bottled water and a couple of protein bars. And every time I've been there, somebody has made their way over to the receptionist window and demanded loudly, when was their turn going to come? I made this appointment for two. It's now 3.15. When? But it's the same thing for every wounded person in there who has the pain and perhaps the fear of loss of movement or loss of some kind. People in pain and fear can be very demanding. And I can only imagine that the doctors and their assistants who hear this feel the strain of it all. And I think about our mission efforts in Morocco and the announcement that the government there is disbanding the refugee camps. And it feels to me like our efforts and our gifts are just discounted. I think about people in the helping professions who just simply wear out with constant demand. Teachers who ask to do more and more with less and less. Ask to shoulder more and more of social problems. Family issues that they're not really equipped for. Social workers who do so much and who see so much. And police officers who see people constantly at their worst. I think of those folks I know with PTSD whose trauma follows them and threatens them and who try to explain to me the emptiness they feel inside, that place of will where you make yourself get up and do something even when you're tired and how they tell me it's just not there. There's nothing there anymore. The disciples come to this place. Jesus teaches a while, and he gets on toward evening, and they realize everybody's getting hungry. Let's send them back into the villages. Let's tell them go get something down there at the 7-Eleven where the hot dog's been rotating on the grill for hours and hours. And Jesus says to them, you feed them. He's asking people who are just drained to do this work of feeding thousands. And they say... We got nothing. We got nothing. Do you ever feel like that? 
dealing with all the poverty and the injustice and the hunger and the need in the world and feel like whatever it is you have, it's not nearly enough. And Jesus orchestrates this feast in the wilderness for thousands. And it's interesting here in Mark's gospel, they use these numbers that are, that are very familiar to Jewish people, to Jewish Christians. It speaks to them. It reminds them of their heritage. And then two chapters later in chapter 8, the same scene is repeated. But then he will use Gentile numbers and Gentile phrasing. As if to say, in this lavish banquet in the desert, it's for everybody. It's for everybody. It contrasts with Herod's birthday bash that's earlier in this chapter. Jesus provides this feast in a deserted place, not a palace. He provides it for all, not just for the elite. A feast that feeds as opposed to that party that led to corruption of a child and to the death of an innocent man. In the midst of what feels like nothing, there's food. Recently read a book I would recommend called Harry's Trees. Harry is a Forest Service employee, but he doesn't work in the forest. He works out of a cubicle in an office. He studied. He knows all the Latin names for the trees. He can tell you everything about the trees, when they're going to bloom, what kind of sounds they make when they're opening up even. He knows trees. But tragedy strikes and takes his wife. And he's overcome with guilt and with grief. And he just numbly goes through the motions for a year. And then he just gives up, leaves his job, and heads out to the forest itself. But there, he meets a child who's had a traumatic death as well. But she copes with fantasy, and her mother fears she'll never come out of the fantasy. Just like the disciples who've been overwhelmed, and they've, they've gone to a lonely place, only to find more pain and more need. And I won't tell you the story. You can read it for yourself. But it is about two people, both broken, finding each other and healing each other. I think it's hard for us, for me, people who are active, who work at this business of being a follower of Jesus, to truly accept grace and believe it's for us in our own broken places. Here in our text, Jesus provides nourishment and sustenance for all. Sometimes... I forget the all includes me. And I believe this asks us some probing questions about our faith. What is it that gives you life? When you're worn out, what gives you life? When your very best is just disregarded, what gives you hope? When no one seems to know what's in your heart, where do you find life? What strengthens you 
in this poisoned political atmosphere in which we live and breathe? What gives you hope when you just want to weep for frightened families torn apart by political fiat and forgotten in the news cycle? Do you believe God has enough for you too? And when you're tired of the struggle, and I can't imagine my friends who have struggled for decades for marriage equality now to find it threatened, where do you find the strength to continue the struggle? And where do we find the humility to accept grace for ourselves? The day goes on. It's late. Jesus says to the disciples, you get in a boat and I'll stay back and I'll dismiss the crowd. He puts him in this boat. And if I ever get the chance to ask Mark anything, I'm going to ask why they're always getting in a boat and going somewhere. But a storm comes, and we miss the point if this Jesus walking on the water, if we want to insist on its literal truth, we miss the point. The sea for them was this place of fear, the place of watery death, this place where there was no control, a place of vulnerability, the place of great danger. The visual for us is the duck boat on the Table Rock Lake in Missouri a place where it was not designed to be at all. And you can only see just a clip and you know it's not going to make it. That's how they felt. And then Jesus comes foot surfing on the water. I can't find any scholar who believes what I think about this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think it's a very playful story. He's walking on the water. He's walking over what they symbolically find to be the most terrifying. And it's child's play for God. The story is telling them that this terrible lake, a sailor has arrived who can make the lake just child's play. And whatever our greatest fear, there's one who comprehends it and is conquering it. One who can dance in the danger. And they discovered God where they least expected. In the place of their greatest greatest vulnerability. And when I read this, I ask, where do I find God? And my confession is I find God in my own places of emptiness and fear and exhaustion and hunger. Amen.